0: Hey, Soma Church, my name is Brandon Shields. I serve as the lead pastor here. Thank you for joining us for the teaching portion this morning. I'm excited about this message that I have for you. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn to John chapter 14. I'm going to be reading from uh, verses 12 to verses 18. So grab a Bible or grab your device. Listen to these words from John. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. If you're joining us uh, for the first time in a while, or you missed last week, we started a brand new series called Come Holy Spirit. And we looked at life in the age of the Spirit last week from Genesis to kind of Revelation. We did an overview of the Spirit age and how Jesus comes to bring the Holy Spirit into the world, to usher in the kingdom of God, to fulfill the promises from uh, prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah who would come to bring about and usher in the reign and the rule of God. And this week I want to look specifically at what that means for us today, to live in the Spirit, this dependent on the same Spirit that Jesus was empowered by. And just a little context here, in John chapter 14, this is Jesus' last sermon to his disciples before his death and resurrection. And similar to us, although different circumstances, separated by thousands of years, but very similarly, he is speaking to um, this inevitable fear that they're facing as they look to the future and imagine a future without Jesus in the flesh beside them. And they're they're literally, Jesus says, gonna be scattered to their homes and gathered in fear. And so he's speaking these words to them to give them peace and assurance uh, and to empower them as they prepare for life beyond his physical ministry on earth. And this is such a mind-blowing passage. I mean, it is really mind-blowing to think about what Jesus is saying here. So let's go back to the, to the text here. He says, truly, truly, I say to you. In other words, like, pay attention to this. Um, what I'm about to say is absolutely true reality. Whoever believes in me, whoever has trust in me, will also do the works that I do. And, get this, mark this, greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Now, if you remember last week, we talked about the works that Jesus did. When Jesus came and he showed up, one of of the first uh, texts he quotes from is Isaiah chapter 61. It's a prophecy about the Messiah, the Spirit-anointed one, who would usher in the reign and the rule of God. And, And Jesus becomes the embodiment of that promise, and the works that he's talking about here are um, kind of, they flow out of this promise in Isaiah. He's going to, uh, he preached about the kingdom of God and offered forgiveness of sins. He heals the sick. He sets free the captives. He gives sight to the blind. He casts out demons. He takes the shattered ones, the oppressed ones, and he liberates them. This This is the ministry of the Messiah. And Jesus says to us, looking them square in the eyes, in all seriousness, you will do these same works. And not only will you do these, but you'll do greater works than these. Now, just think about that for a second. Greater works than Jesus. How in the world could we do greater things than casting out demons, giving sight to the blind, preaching the kingdom of God in a very powerful way? Um, What does Jesus mean? Scholars are divided on different interpretations of this passage. But I think uh, at, the, at the core, what Jesus is saying is a couple of things. One, he, he, he can't mean lesser. We all, can, we all can agree on the fact that it's not going to be less than these great works. And I think what, what Jesus means here, what most scholars think he means, is uh, at least that these works will be greater in quantity, not necessarily in qu- quality. So greater in quantity, not greater in quality. It's kind of like... Um, for those of you parents, you know what I'm talking about here. You're, you're at home with your kids, and um, maybe um, you, the house is just getting destroyed, right? In, in quarantine, we're homeschooling. We're all over the place. We've got books scattered everywhere, computers, laptops scattered everywhere. And there's never been a, a more opportune time if you didn't already teach your kids before the quarantine uh, how to do chores. And so we're constantly reminding our kids, like, we are going to be a better family, a more powerful family, uh, a more sane family. If um, you will do your chores, when you do your chores, um, we're going to be a much stronger family. We're going to be able to flourish in a different kind of way. You're going to be able to do these better than we as parents could do them. Now, what I mean by that is um, not like they'll actually do them better than me. They, they, they're terrible at folding clothes. They're not uh, particularly great at uh, doing the dishes or washing uh, clothes. But what I mean is there's more of us available, and if we work together together, the, the presence of six of us doing chores actually makes us more powerful and stronger and more cohesive as a family than if their mother and I are just simply the ones doing. The chores. And that's kind of the same thing we see here. Jesus isn't saying you're going to do, you, you can't raise from the dead better than Jesus. You can't die on the cross better than Jesus. But because Jesus' disciples are going to scatter, and you and I are going to scatter throughout the world, and we're able to go to places physically that Jesus will no longer go physically, he says you will do the kinds of works that I've been doing, these powerful miracles and signs and wonders and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, you will do these things. So he says anything you want ask in my name. In other words, ask in line with the idea in the ancient Near East of a name was a person's character um, or their their nature. So ask it in a way that's aligned with my character, my vision, my heart, and my purposes. And then he tells us how this is going to happen. So how do we actually do these works? He goes on to say, I will ask the Father, and he will give you a helper he will give you the word there is paraclete the one who will come alongside and who will advocate and empower you to do these good works the spirit of truth you know him he says for he will dwell in you and will be with you so this is going to happen through the ministry of the holy spirit he's going to make his home in us just like he did in the life of jesus and we're going to learn to depend on him and he's going to enable us both individually and collectively to do the works of Jesus. Before we jump in and talk about what it looks like to do those works, I just want to recap, so we're all on the same page, about uh, the nature of the Holy Spirit. What is Jesus promising? What's he saying here, and what he, what's he not saying here? And I want to review this because I'm not assuming that all of us grew up in church, I'm not assuming that all of us know uh, who the Holy Spirit is that Jesus is talking about here. And so um, we used this phrase last week, I borrowed it from Gordon Fee, who's a New Testament scholar, uh, the Holy Spirit as God's empowering presence. And I just want to back up for a second, and I want to unpack that because that's that's what Jesus is, has in mind here as his framework for understanding who the Holy Spirit is. So let's talk about that phrase, God's empowering presence. Um, let's start with God's presence. So the Holy Spirit is, you could say, God's personal presence to us. So let's let's just break that down one by one. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is not just some angel or some life force. Uh, the Holy Spirit is God, a member of the Trinity, the third person of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, the Bible never explicitly mentions the Trinity anymore. You'll never go to a verse and it says, now here's the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but it is implied and assumed throughout the Bible. So I'll throw some of this up on the screen. We're not gonna get into the details here, but um, some of the ways we know the Holy Spirit is is God in the Bible. It's just assumed in the Bible. We see divine attributes or characteristics attributed to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's eternal, just like God. The Holy Spirit is everywhere or omnipresent, just like God. The Holy Spirit is all-knowing or omniscient, just like God. He can be blasphemed against, just like God. And he's the one who gives life and can take life away. He also uh, is associated with the divine name. You see these divine associations throughout the New Testament. Believers were in the Great Commission to be baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Literally, when you were baptized as an early Christian, you would be dipped, sometimes even three times, in the Trinitarian mode or expression of baptism in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira lied to the apostles, the apostle Peter says, why is it that you've lied against God? And then he goes on to say, against the Holy Spirit. He equates the Holy Spirit and God. And so we see um, throughout the New Testament, 2 Corinthians, other places, um, you can see that um, the Lord is the Spirit and the Spirit is the Lord. The New Testament uh, writers and the earliest Christians never saw a distinction between the two. And so when the early creeds were formulated, and uh, centuries after that, as they were kind of battling over the nature and the character of God, we see things like this. And you're familiar with these if you've grown up in church, the Apostles' Creed. This is kind of the orthodox view of the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. The Nicene Creed, written just a few centuries later, goes on to say, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. Who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, He is worshiped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. Karl Barth, a theologian uh, in the last couple centuries, put it succinctly. I like the way that he describes the person of the Holy Spirit as God. He says, The Holy Spirit is no less and no other than God Himself. Distinct from Him whom that Jesus calls Father, distinct also from Jesus Himself, yet no less than the Father, no less than Jesus, God Himself, God all together. So Jesus is, is referring to the Holy Spirit as God. He also is saying the Holy Spirit is a person. He's a personal God. He's not an it or a force or an influence or as we like to talk about now when we think about the spiritual realm, an energy that's diffused throughout the world, like you know something you would do in yoga, meditation or something. Uh, he's not an angel. He is a person. And I'll throw up on the slide here the list of different um, characteristics of his personhood. We see that the Holy Spirit speaks, the Holy Spirit, spirit sends, he chooses, he, he can know things, he teaches, he gives and guides. And on down the list, you can see all the different expressions of personhood in the spirit. He is a person with which we are, whom with which we are in relationship. And then finally, God's personal Presence. He is the presence of God, the indwelling presence of God come to live in us and to make his home in us. The same divine presence that hovered over creation we saw last week in Genesis chapter one, like a mother eagle over her chicks, that breathed life into and formed the human soul and spirit, that dwelt in the tabernacle, in the temple of the Old Testament, that was promised in Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Joel, who was poured out on and filled Jesus and characterized his life and ministry and death and resurrection, that same spirit, the Bible says, is now being poured out on or given to us. And just like Jesus, it, it gives us a sense of identity and also a sense of authority. It gives us an identity as God's beloved children um, and as his body. We, we now, individually and corporately, Paul says, are the dwelling place of God's presence. We're the new tabernacle, we're the new temple, we're the new priesthood, we're the new body of Christ, filled with the Spirit of the living God. The Spirit gives us this new identity as God's beloved children, which means that we now have the ability for the first time in redemptive history as followers of Jesus to internalize the love of God for us. And it makes this deep soul-to-soul, heart-to-heart, spirit-to-spirit, person-to-person communion with God possible for us in a way that's different, radically different than the way believers experience God in times past. So he gives us this intimacy, this identity as children of God. But it doesn't stop there. Some of us, we stop there. We stop with the intimacy. We stop with the relationship and the communion and the love. But it's so much more than that. Just like Jesus, it's also a measure of authority. It's It's new power that comes into our lives. He gives us new power to continue Jesus's mission of announcing and demonstrating the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth. And this is what I want to spend the rest of our time on here together. I want to come back to this text and I want to look at how this promise that Jesus made to his disciples about doing these greater works actually worked itself out in the life of the early church. Because that is really the focus of the rest of the New Testament is taking Jesus's promise and showing us how that actually worked itself out in uh, the power that the early church experienced. It's what distinguished the the earliest Christians from the world around them as they had been with God and experienced his resurrection power as embodied in the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, after this, says to the disciples in Luke chapter 24, before he ascends, after he raises from the dead... He releases the spirit on the cross. He rises from the dead. He comes back to his disciples. And on the other side of the resurrection, he says this in the last words in Luke 24 before he's taken up back into heaven. He says, behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. So now we see the Holy Spirit is not just one who comes to give us assurance. He's one who comes to give us power. The Holy Spirit, you could say, is God in action. The Spirit and power go hand in hand throughout the New Testament. You'll rarely see one without the other from here forward. I love these words from uh, Oxford uh, theologian Simon Ponzenby. He says this, The Holy Spirit is God omnipresent and omnipotent. When we consider God the Spirit, we meet God present in person and in power. If you flip over a couple chapters or a couple books to Acts, Luke's second volume, he says this, uh, he records these events. Luke was a doctor and he traveled with the Apostle Paul um, on his early journeys and writing about what he experienced in the early church as, a, as a te- an eyewitness and a, and a firsthand eyewitness to these events. Here's what he says. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. That's the book of Luke. I've I've written to you about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now in the book of Acts, I'm going to write write to you about what Jesus continues to do and to teach, not physically, but spiritually through the acts of the Holy Spirit in the early disciples. So when the disciples had come together, verse 6, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They've experienced so much power, they expect the Messiah to come and establish a political kingdom on earth. And here's what he says. It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive, there's that word again, dunamis in the Greek, power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will bring his very power into the lives of believers. John Owen, who wrote a tome on the Holy Spirit just a couple of centuries ago, says it like this, spiritual power accompanies spiritual life to enable the soul in the acts and the duties of holy obedience. So Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter two, the spirit falls, there's fire, there's an earthquake, there's the shaking of the house in which these 120 or so believers are gathered together we call this the time of Pentecost when the spirit's poured out and we see the rest of the book of the, uh, the rest of the book of acts the holy spirit's power working itself out in the early community transforming everything about them we see power throughout the book of acts this power is manifested in lots of different ways it's primarily signs and wonders just like in the ministry of Jesus and preaching. And those things, again, go together. They're complementary. Preaching of the gospel of the kingdom and the signs and the wonders that come along with the kingdom of God as it's manifested in power. We see, again, you could read chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6. You begin to see this over and over and over again. There's power that's demonstrated, power that gives sight to the blind, power that raises the dead. Even The power is so concentrated, so heightened, early in in the book of Acts that literally like if the apostles throw out a handkerchief, people are being healed, people are being raised from the dead. I mean, that's a kind of power that I, I don't walk in now, right? This is what we see in the book of Acts. The power to exercise demons, to conquer evil by the Spirit. The power to conquer disease through the Spirit. The power to announce sins forgiven by Jesus. And the power to conquer sin through the Spirit. The power to witness to the world and conquer world divisions through the Spirit. And it doesn't stop in the book of Acts. We see the apostle Paul talk about this over and over and over again. First Corinthians chapter 2, he says, my speech and my message as Paul went out on his missionary journeys, they were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, he says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. One of the primary metaphors, some of the, some of the primary metaphors used for the Holy Spirit in the Bible are these primal forces of nature. Think about the Spirit exemplified uh, and, and, and used metaphorically in terms of the forces of wind, right? Rushing winds, fire that falls on the community, water, the living water uh, that, that flows, um, and we're invited to come and to drink of that water, earthquakes, things shaking. I mean, these primal forces of nature. Um, are intended to communicate the power of the Spirit. The Spirit is, just like these forces, unpredictable. The Spirit is not controllable. It's not something we can, he's not someone we can manipulate. He's, there's a wildness and a mystery to the Spirit. Jesus says the Spirit is like a wind, the breath of God that that blows where he wills. No one knows where he's gonna go and where he's gonna show up. That's why I think some of us are afraid, <laughs> for honest, I know I am sometimes, of the wildness of the Spirit, because he's not, controllable. You can't domesticate him. You can't put him in a box or limit him. He will do what he's going to do. This continues on beyond the early church. This continues on into the early uh, churches. We read church history, these accounts over and over again. When the Spirit of God shows up, powerful things begin to happen. Signs and wonders begin to break out in unexpected ways. I'll just give you a small sampling of what we see and read about in accounts of uh, the earliest Christians in the first few centuries after the life of Jesus. Uh, Irenaeus, who lived in the second, third century, said this, "...some do certainly and truly drive out devils, so that those who have been cleansed from evil spirits frequently both believe in Christ and join themselves to the church. Others still heal the sick by laying their hands on them, and they are made whole." The dead even have been raised and remained among us. Augustine, writing in the 4th century in North Africa, says this about, the early, about his experiences with the Spirit. Many miracles are wrought. The same God who wrought those we read of in the Bible is still performing them now. We see this with St. Anthony the monk later in the 3rd century, Hilary of, of Poitiers in the 4th century, Bernard of Clairvaux in the 11th and 12th century. And even Luther and Calvin, Calvin who was what you call a sensationist, a little skeptical of uh, the Holy Spirit, he had a seatbelt on when it came to his views of the Spirit. Even he talked about miracle after miracle that he experienced um, in Geneva and Luther in Germany as the Spirit broke out and they, they experienced revival there. Charles Spurgeon, a Baptist of all people, writing in London, uh, talks about this yearning and desire he had to experience more of the power of the Spirit in nineteenth century. this 19th century revival that swept through London through the ministry of Spurgeon. He says this, in a few more years, I don't know when, I don't know how, the Holy Spirit will be poured out in a far different way than the present. During the last few days, it has been the case that the diversified ministries have resulted in very little outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Ministers have gone on in a dull routine, continually preaching, 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 and little good has been accomplished. He's longing for the Holy Spirit to be poured out again. Not that preaching's bad, not that teaching's bad, but he's saying there's more to the spiritual life than just information and learning and the acquisition of knowledge. The Spirit comes and brings power on his people. I love the way this book, Life on the Vine, puts this point. The Spirit is the lifeblood of the church, the vivifying force that makes its very existence possible. Without the Spirit, the church is either an empty and lifeless shell or a horrific monstrosity animated by some spirit other than the Spirit of the risen Jesus. The Holy Spirit is God's empowering presence. The question is, what does that mean for us today? What's our invitation as we sit in our homes uh, under lock and key during a quarantine and a pandemic? I think the invitation for us is the same invitation for Jesus' disciples. It's an invitation to become a spirit-empowered people. And for us, what's unique is we are in this moment of fragility. And I think we have an opportunity to be a counterculture in a moment where everybody's freaking out because it feels so fragile with the things we've put our hope in have been stripped away, we have an opportunity to be a power, spirit-empowered community. If you wanna think about the moment that we're living in, one way to think about it is as an inversion of the, the spirit age. If the spirit age is characterized by God's empowering presence, the moment that we're living in, what Charles Taylor, the philosopher, called uh, the, the, our, our secular age is kind of the inverse of that. The absence of God leading to a sense of fragility or powerlessness rather than the presence of God fueling the power of God in the world. And I want to contrast here just for a second this idea of fragility with weakness. Weakness is something that God wants to do in the life of a Christian to open us up to the Spirit's power. But fragility actually depends on something totally different. There was a book that was put out a couple of years ago, and if you read it, it was a business book called uh, anti-fragile by a guy named Nassim Nicholas Taleb, and he argues prior to the pandi- pandemic that underneath all the posturing of progress and prosperity that we've experienced in the late modern West over the last several centuries, he said there's an emerging fragility. There's this illusion that we have that we're strong, that we're safe, that we're in control, and he said that's really an illusion. It's it's masking a vulnerability. He says all it's going to take is a disruption, a crisis, a, a pandemic, a, a micro, whatever. To, uh, to wake us up. We were in this position of feeling proud and superior and, and really attempting to find a sense of security in superior technology or superior uh, political systems or marketplace capitalism or specialized knowledge and wealth. And again, none of these things are wrong inherently, but they can become ways in which we subtly, even as believers in Jesus, attempt to create a life apart from the presence and power of God and what that absence of God leads to, as Talib says, is fragile systems, fragile governments, fragile citizens, fragile people and even fragile churches. Talib's answer is to become anti-fragile, through reframing and kind of performing our way through with creativity and imagination and better political and economic systems and frameworks. And again, while these things aren't bad in and of themselves, they are not enough to save us and transform us because they still invite us to place our confidence in ourselves and our own mastery of the world. It's really just pride and idolatry repackaged as success. My fear for us in this moment is that some of us attempt to power up and power through this crisis the same way. You'll see all kinds of imitations right now and advertisements about getting a Peloton bike and and engaging in some new personal fitness routine, taking Rosetta Stone and learn a foreign language, or taking a master's class. And again, nothing wrong with these things. They aren't bad. I'm certainly all for fitness. But they can be ways that we can seek to perform our way through, to increase and double down on proficiency and competency, um, to power through a time of feeling fragile. And here's the reality. We cannot power through this in our own strength. We cannot fix this in our own strength. These are all temptations to to pride and idolatry and prediction and control and self-trust. And so what I believe that the Spirit's inviting us to is not to be fragile. To be fragile is to place your hope in things that cannot save you. That's the meaning of fragility, and it's true. Like, those things can't save you. But what the Bible invites us to do is to own our weakness and to seek the Spirit's strength By own our weakness, I mean what Paul means when he writes about life in the Spirit. He talks about this paradox of finding in our weakness a pathway to strength. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, "'My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, in calamities. For when I am weak, then I'm strong. See, weaknesses, biblically speaking, are vulnerabilities. They're limitations. They're realities that we can't fix or control. Similar to microbes or viruses, pandemics. Maybe for some of us, that looks like mental or physical or emotional or spiritual limitations. Many of us are facing our weaknesses like we've never had to before. We're now... Trapped in our homes, we're in our homes and we're experiencing marital conflict. Divorce rates are skyrocketing in countries across the world where people are in isolation. We have our children at home. Some of us have children with special needs. Uh, We're facing the loss of productivity, uncontrollable grief, loss of loved ones, depression, mental health. This pandemic is emptying us of our strength and all of the strategies and the relationships and the securities and the comforts that we look to to make us strong. And the invitation from Jesus is, own those weaknesses. Don't try to transcend them. Don't try to perform your way through them. Even in the church, we've had to face this, right? Like we've had our, our, our big kind of queen piece, as Alan Hirsch, missiologist said, he says the queen's been taken out of the chess game, right? Like our gatherings, those things that we use to, to influence and to leverage uh, large gatherings to help disciple people, that's now gone. Right? And so now, he says, it's time to rediscover what the other pieces can do. And this is an opportunity for us to look at households, to look at individuals, and say, how can we own those weaknesses and limitations and then seek the power and the presence of the Spirit? God wants to empty us out so that we can be filled with the Spirit. Weakness is now going to be the way for all of us, the only way for all of us to come back stronger and more resilient and more beautiful as the church of God. Big gatherings are out smaller households and discipleship groups are in performance and productivity are limited what we need is prayer and dependence on the spirit's power to get us through and that's what we need more than anything else in that moment that's our invitation i believe as a church is to draw near to the presence of god right um when i am weak and i am in need of muscle whether it's moving something i mean you can tell i'm not like a huge guy by any means and when i need muscle to move uh, I, I call a strong friend and I, I don't try to work myself up into some state, I call strong friends. I call James Piscasio. I call Matt Wagner. Uh, and, and what I do is I, as I grow in my relationship with them and I get to know them, I have access to more power because they're strong where I'm not strong. And it's the same thing with the spirit. As we draw near to him and we get to know him and we spend time in his presence, we have access to his power. The power is in the presence. And as so we spend time with the spirit He wants to empower us, to move us to a place where with the Apostle Paul we can say, though we are weak, in him we are strong. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this invitation to become a spirit-empowered, spirit-drenched community. May we find in our weaknesses, in our limitations, in our vulnerabilities an opportunity to become strong in you, to cry out to you, to pray to you, to depend on you and trust in you just as Jesus did. And God, would you through us Do the works that you promised to do. Would you pour out your spirit on households and individuals and allow us in this experience to come back stronger, not because we've found some way to push through or perform our way through, but because we've depended on you. And as Zechariah says, not by might, not by strength, not by wisdom, not by strategy, but only by the power of your spirit will we be strong enough to do all that you've called us to do. And so God, help us to live into that reality this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.